Turn in your copy of scriptures to the book of Ezekiel, after Lamentations, before Daniel, 820, in the uh, page number for the hymns in the pews. <clears throat> he only gave me three verses this morning, so I can take a little extra time. First of all, I want to thank whoever picked the movie for this family night, because I think you finally got my intellectual level when you picked the Muppet movie. And... Uh, Secondly, I'd like to, Teresa and I and our family would like to thank you. Those of you who have coveted to pray for our son, Joel. Those of you who coveted to pray for our, uh, Teresa's dear mother, Lillian, uh, who's uh, still struggling with uh, cancer. But I want to tell you this morning, as a word of testimony and encouragement, that God is answering prayer in both cases. Just boundless grace. Boundless grace. Of the Lord Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. Turn to Ezekiel 1. Someone has said this book I think somebody wrote a book about it called All Things Weird and Wonderful. So I'm looking forward to this series. In the 30th year, in the fourth month on the fifth day, while I was among the exiles by the Kiber River, the heavens were opened, and I saw visions of God. On the fifth of the month, it was the fifth year of the exile of King Jehoiakim, the word of the Lord came to Ezekiel the priest, the son of Buzi, by the Kiba River in the land of the Babylonians. There the hand of the Lord was upon him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now as we, if you'll stand with me and sing ancient words, we'll dismiss our kids for kids' worship. I'd like us to begin uh, by doing something that fits very well with the song that we've just sung. I'd like us to say together the second article of our church's statement of faith. It's the article entitled The Bible. We could have that printed up there. Let's say this together, shall we? We believe that God has spoken in the scriptures, both Old and New Testaments, through the words of human authors. As the verbally inspired word of God, the Bible is without error in the original writings, the complete revelation of his will for salvation and the ultimate authority by which every realm of human knowledge and endeavor should be judged. Therefore, it is to be believed in all that it teaches, obeyed in all that it requires and trusted in all that it promises. I take that statement very seriously, and it informs all that I do as a pastor, and especially my role as the primary preacher in this church. If I don't expound what is found in the Bible, then my preaching has no authority, and you certainly have no obligation to submit your lives to it. And my responsibility is to preach biblically. 
And to preach biblically, faithfully, you have to preach the whole Bible, the whole counsel of God. You can't just preach your favorite passages, the, you know, the pleasant bits, the warm and fuzzy bits. You'll have to, have to preach the, the hard and challenging bits, the bits that may make us squirm in our seats. Whereas Paul writes, all Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, and correcting, and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. All Scripture, Paul said. So I actually keep a record uh, in my Bible right here in the table of contents. And I put little check marks next to the books of the Bible that I have preached from. I want to know. And of the 66 books, I'm down to less than a dozen that don't have little check marks. But I confess there's one notable member in that list of omissions. It is the book of Ezekiel. Uh, in nearly 25 years of preaching ministry in this church, I have never preached a series of sermons from the book of Ezekiel. So those of you who've been a part of this church during those 25 years have never heard a series of sermons from the book of Ezekiel. Now, there, there are a number of reasons for my reluctance, I suppose. I mean, Ezekiel is a big book. It's got 48 chapters, so you certainly can't just sit down and tackle it in an afternoon. I mean, you really have to dig into it with some effort if you want to grasp the whole thing. But more than that, Ezekiel is a difficult book. I mean, the prophets as a whole are an odd lot, but by far, Ezekiel takes the cake. I mean, he has bizarre visions of strange creatures with wheels within wheels that he can't even describe. And, and some have thought they were aliens from outer space. Uh, he has these spiritual levitation experiences where he seems transported across space and in dreamlike trances, engaged in all sorts of prophetic acts that are like acted parables in which uh, he's trying to portray God's message to God's people. I mean, he, he's mute for years. He's bound and naked for months. He digs holes in the walls of houses. He's, he's emotionless after the death of his wife. Ezekiel is weird, bordering on the wacky. And not surprisingly, such behavior has spawned uh, psychoanalytical studies of Ezekiel with claims that he exhibits a number of diagnostic characteristics, including catatonic seizures, narcissistic, masochistic conflict, schizophrenic withdrawal, delusions of grandeur and of paranoid persecution. Some have even suggested a pathology arising from childhood abuse or an Oedipus complex. And Ezekiel seems to have a, a wild literary imagination. He uses graphic, sometimes nearly pornographic imagery to uh, confess, uh, profess God's message in, in language that many find downright offensive. And what Ezekiel talks about again and again in a very repetitive style is God's judgment of a sinful Israel. It's not bedtime reading, let me tell you. Messages from Ezekiel are generally not found in children's story Bibles. Now, to be fair, as we'll see, Ezekiel also conveys a message of hope. In fact, Ezekiel give us, gives us some of the most powerful words of hope found in the whole Old Testament. But you have to get through a lot of tough stuff before you get there. And I think another thing to consider about Ezekiel that makes it difficult is the book of Ezekiel is hardly referred to in the New Testament, apart from the book of Revelation, which certainly provides its closest canonical cousin. And that tells you a lot about the kind of book it is. 
It's a hard book. And many a committed Christian has begun reading it only to drop away after a few chapters. And it's not just moderns who feel this way. The church father, Jerome, wrote that the beginning and ending of Ezekiel are involved in so great obscurity that they are not studied by the Hebrews until they are 30 years old. But I'm well past 30. So it's high time I dug into this book, this God-breathed book of divine scripture, a book that I do believe is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness. So here we are embarking on this journey through Ezekiel together. Now, the next four months or so, with some breaks along the way, we'll be devoting ourselves to the message of this Old Testament prophet. Now, we're not going to go through this verse of this book uh, verse by verse, but I've picked out key passages through the book that convey the major themes. And you'll see your uh, schedule in your uh, bulletin there with uh, 14 sermons devoted to this study. As I'm convinced, there are important things that our God wants to teach us about himself and about us that are contained within the the pages of this book. So I encourage you to follow along at home. I want you to spend some time on your own reading Ezekiel during your own devotional times during the weeks and months ahead. This morning, I want us to look at just the first three verses which Ed read for us, the verses which set the scene, giving us a picture of the context in which Ezekiel preached. And I want to present an overview of this book by looking at the setting the messenger, and his message. Let me read those verses for you again. Ezekiel chapter 1, verse 1. In the thirtieth year, in the fourth month, on the fifth day, while I was among the exiles by the Kebar River, the heavens were opened, and I saw visions of God. On the fifth of the month, it was the fifth year of the exile of King Jehoiakim, The word of the Lord came to Ezekiel, the priest, the son of Buzi, by the Kabar River in the land of the Babylonians. There the hand of the Lord was upon him. Now, the first thing you notice about this introduction is that it's actually two introductions. It begins as a first person autobiographical writing. Ezekiel himself writes in verse one, while I was among the exiles by the Kabar River. In fact, this is how the rest of the book is written. It's it's Ezekiel's own words about his experiences. But then in verses 2 and 3, the introduction starts again, this time in the third person. Apparently, an editor of the book wants to describe who this I of verse 1 is. He is Ezekiel the priest, the son of Buzi. And then he sets Ezekiel in the broader historical and geographical context. It was the fifth year of the exile of King Jehoiakim. And he was by the Kabar River in the land of the Babylonians. So I want us to look at the setting a little more closely. For understanding the setting is very important for understanding the message of this book. For again, as our statement of faith affirms, God speaks to us through the words of human authors. And so God's message to us today comes through Ezekiel's message to the people of Israel some 2,600 years ago. So we need to appreciate the context in which he wrote. Think about that, for example. Uh, Imagine the difference it would make in reading something that was written in New York City on September 10th, 2001, as opposed to something written on September 12th 
of that same year. You see, context is important. So I want to review a little bit of history here, and it might help you to take out this little yellow sheet that's included in your bulletin. It's a handy little reference guide, uh, gives you some of the key dates. Uh, One of them, I warn you, is not quite right. I challenge you as I speak to discover which one that is. I want to take you back to the latter half of the 7th century B.C., Now, the northern kingdom of Israel is already out of the picture. They had been destroyed by the mighty Assyrians a century before that. Their capital city of Samaria had been captured, wiped away in 722 B.C. Now, since that time, the southern kingdom of Judah, which was also called Israel at this time, had basically become a vassal state under Assyrian domination. But the long reign of the Assyrians as the world's superpower was coming to an end. I mean, after all, empires rise and empires fall, all within the sovereign rule of God. Assyria was weakening. And the other powers, uh, Egypt to the south and to the west and Babylon to the north, they were vying for supremacy. And the smaller states, like Judah, they were seeking their own freedom and independence during this period. The international playing field was very much in flux. Josiah, who was one of those rare godly kings in Judah, he took the throne in Jerusalem in about 640 B.C. He he began a a religious revival in Judah, a revival that was fueled by the discovery of the Mosaic Book of the Law during a time of temple renovation in 622 B.C. Josiah ordered the destruction of the pagan places of worship, the, the high places as they were called, and he purged the priests who had served in these pagan uh, shrines. Now the prophet Jeremiah was engaged in ministry at this time. He was cheering uh, Josiah on during this time of revival. But it soon became clear that it's one thing to eradicate idol worship in the high places. It's quite another to remove idolatry from the hearts and the minds of the people. And so the land was still full of false worship and all manner of social evil. But worship in the temple in Jerusalem seemed to be flourishing. People kept coming, offering their sacrifices and trusting that the Lord was their God and the temple would stand forever. God was with them. They were confident. And all the while they were worshiping their idols. They were oppressing the poor. Now, that contradiction between their outward worship and their moral behavior, it was too much for Jeremiah and it was too much for God. And Jeremiah boldly preached against the people's false trust in religion, but his warnings were unheeded. Now, returning to the politics of the situation, in the year 609, King Josiah marched out with his small army to try to intercept the Egyptian pharaoh Necho, who was heading north to help Assyria against the newly rising power of Babylon. And the Judean army was defeated in the battle at Megiddo, and King Josiah was killed. So Judah, for a while, fell under the power of Egypt, who disposed uh, Josiah's successor, Jehoiahaz. He exiled him to Egypt and replaced him with another son of Josiah, Jehoiakim. Jehoiakim with an M. Now that's important. Keep these straight. M comes before N, if you want to keep the players in mind. Jehoiakim pursued a policy of subservience to Egypt. He paid heavily in taxes and and tribute. And in the process, he reversed the religious reforms of Josiah. 
And for that, he came into bitter conflict with the prophet Jeremiah. You may recall the vivid scene in which Jehoiakim sits by his fire pot on a cold winter day and he brazenly burns Jeremiah's scrolls of prophecy as they're read to him. Well, internationally, Egypt and Babylon were duking it out for world supremacy and the eventual winner was Babylon. Babylon, under their new leader, Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar. They utterly crushed the Egyptians at the Battle of Carchemish in 605 B.C. And Nebuchadnezzar immediately set about to bring Judah and these other smaller vassal states into his orbit of control. Then again in 605 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar's initial conquest of Jerusalem resulted in a, a first wave of exiles to Babylon, including the prophet Daniel. And King Jehoiakim submitted himself to the Babylonian king. But then seven years later, in about 598-97, Jehoiakim, against the advice of Jeremiah, rebelled against Babylonian rule. And Nebuchadnezzar moved his army to quell this rebellion. He besieged Jerusalem. In the process, Jehoiakim dies in some uh, circumstances that aren't very clear. And after a three-month siege, Jerusalem surrenders. And Jehoiakim's son, Jehoiakim, with an N, is installed in his place. Now, on this occasion, Nebuchadnezzar was relatively merciful. He didn't destroy the city. He just plundered some of the temple treasures and he carried the king Jehoiakim and his royal family into exile, along with about 10,000 others, the social cream of the crop in Israel, all the officers and the fighting men and the craftsmen and the artisans, we read in 2 Kings 24, and included among them was a young man named Ezekiel. So it was five years later, in the fifth year of the exile of King Jehoiakim, Ezekiel found himself among the exiles by the Kabar River in far-off Mesopotamia, some 750 miles from his homeland. Now, this is not a very pleasant place to be. The Kabar River was probably just an irrigation canal. It was part of a complex system that, that brought water from the Tigris and the Euphrates rivers into the city of Babylon. It was probably a, a desolate, uh, unpopulated area, which would have been suitable for what we would call refugee camps. That's what they were, refugees. And perhaps these exiles were put to work in these irrigation projects in the oppressive heat of the Mesopotamian plain when they had been used to the cooler hills of Judea. Ezekiel lived among a people suffering dislocation and loss and trauma. We can scarcely begin to imagine what it must have been like. I think our Sudanese brothers and sisters might know a little bit more about such a thing than we. They, they had experienced the horrors of war. They'd been part of a besieged city with its famine, its filth, its disease. In fact, their condition is reflected probably in what Ezekiel says in chapter 37, verse 11. They say our bones are dried up and our hope is gone. We are cut off. They were in exile. Exile. One writer comments on the meaning of exile. Exile. It's not simply being homeless. Rather, it's knowing that you do have a home, but that your home has been taken over by enemies. Exile. It's not being without roots. On the contrary, it's having deep roots, which have now been plucked up. And there you are with roots dangling, writhing in pain, exposed to a cold and jeering world, longing to be restored to native and nurturing soil. Exile. 
It's knowing precisely where you belong. But knowing you can't go back. Not yet. These people were in exile. They were in despair. But you know, even at the same time, there were some that Ezekiel had to confront who still had a kind of hollow optimism. Thinking that the worst was now over and soon they would return to Judea and all would go back to normal. No. It wouldn't be like that, Ezekiel proclaimed. No, it would get worse before it got better. Much worse. And he was in the land of the Babylonians, we read in verse 3. What a, what a culture shock that must have been. The magnificent displays of the, the religion of Babylon. It exuded power. It exuded glory. Babylon with its massive temples and housing its glittering gods. It was overwhelming. It was oppressive. Who dared to stand against it? The theological worldview of the Israelites must have been just rocked to the core. I mean, where was the Lord, their God, in all of this? Had he been defeated by the gods of Babylon? Was he just as frustrated? Was he just as impotent as they were? Or even worse, was the Lord himself really behind all this? Was this his doing? And if so, they had to ask themselves, is he really good after all? We thought he was on our side, but can he be trusted? And what was to become of this promise to Abraham? His covenant with his people. You see, the very identity of Israel as God's people, it was all up for grabs. All these questions, all these doubts had to be swirling in the heads of the exiles by the Kabar River in the land of the Babylonians. But meanwhile, back in Jerusalem, things continued to boil over. You see, the anti-Babylon movement in Jerusalem grew stronger. And eventually, again, in spite of Jeremiah's warnings, Zedekiah, the newly installed king, he instigated yet another rebellion against Babylon in 589. And this time, Nebuchadnezzar showed no mercy. No more Mr. Nice Guy from Mr. Nebuchadnezzar. No, in a crushing blow, he brought the full weight of his army against Jerusalem. He besieged the city, and it was a siege that lasted 18 horrible months of famine and disease and of death. And all hopes were eventually crushed. And in 587, the walls were breached. The army fled and the army was annihilated in the countryside. King Zedekiah was captured and King Zedekiah was forced to watch the execution of his own sons before his eyes were plucked out and he became blind. That became his final sight. And then he was carried off as a prisoner to Babylon. The walls of the city were demolished and the temple of the Lord the temple that had been commissioned by King David. The temple that was built 360 years before. In the glory days of King Solomon, the temple of the Lord was burned to the ground. Most of the population that was left was carried off in humiliating disgrace and defeat into Babylon. And the news of the final fall of the city soon reached Ezekiel. He refers to it in chapter 33, verse 21. A man who had escaped from Jerusalem came to me and said, 
The city has fallen. The city has fallen. The full wrath of God had been poured out upon His people. There would be no quick return to Judah. No, all was lost. The city has fallen. The temple of God has been destroyed. But this event, in fact, becomes a turning point in Ezekiel's ministry. For the next 15 years, he offers a new message of hope in the midst of despair. And in the final chapters, he addresses this decimated, this totally demoralized remnant of God's people. And he gives us some of the richest messages of God's grace found anywhere in the Old Testament. This is where Ezekiel found himself on this day, on the fifth day of the fourth month of the fifth year of the exile of King Jehoiakim. By one reckoning, July 31st. 593 B.C. You see, God didn't send the Israelites a messenger from the outside. No, He sent them one who was among them. One who himself had experienced the same disappointment, the same despair. God's messenger, Ezekiel. Let's look a little bit further at who this messenger was. Now, he's described in verse 2 as Ezekiel the priest, the son of Buzi. Now, it's not entirely clear whether the priest refers to Ezekiel or to his father, Buzi. In fact, it doesn't matter much because the priesthood in Israel was hereditary. If Buzi was a priest, his son Ezekiel would follow in his footsteps. So this means that Ezekiel's whole education in childhood and in early adulthood was to prepare him for the duties of the priesthood in Jerusalem. He'd learned all the tasks related to the sacrificial rituals of the temple. He'd become familiar with all the Levitical regulations and prescriptions, which included knowledge of animal anatomy and butchery. He's also trained to teach and administer the law of God. And his book reflects much of that knowledge and education. He probably heard the preaching of Jeremiah, who himself had been trained as a priest. And his training as a priest would have shaped his view of the world, and especially his perception of the centrality of the temple in Jerusalem. The temple of God. See, that's where God's people met with their God. That's where God dwelt among them. That's where atonement was made for the sin of the people. That's where Ezekiel had developed a profound sensitivity to issues of defilement and purity between clean and unclean, between the sacred and the profane. And the temple worship taught the priests that sin is dirty, it is ugly, it is grotesque, it is gruesome, it is disgusting, it pollutes and it perverts. And that certainly comes out in his preaching. And the temple worship had taught the priest that the ultimate sin is the sin of idolatry. The worship of anything other than the one true God, the Holy One of Israel. And I think Ezekiel's upbringing as a priest may give us clue to the significance of the first time reference mentioned in the very first verse of the book when it says, in the 30th year. In the 30th year of what? Or from what? It doesn't say. But I think it's significant that according to Numbers chapter 4, Levites were eligible for work in the temple as priests between the ages of 30 and 50. In the 30th year then, 
could refer to Ezekiel's own 30th year. The year that he had been preparing for all his life. The year that he was to be ordained for priestly service. He'd been looking forward to his 30th birthday. But now that day had come. And where was he? Instead of entering into the holy temple of God on Mount Zion, Ezekiel was languishing in a refugee camp on the outskirts of Babylon, surrounded by idolatry and polytheism and mocked by his captors. It was not supposed to be like this. This is not the life that he had planned for, that he had prepared for. This is not the life that he had dreamed of. Something had gone terribly wrong. I like Christopher Wright's comment when he says no birthday party songs were sung by the side of the canal that day. More likely, he sang something like Psalm 137. By the rivers of Babylon, we sat and wept when we remembered Zion. There on the poplars, we hung our harps for there our captors asked us for songs. Our tormentors demanded songs of joy. They said, sing us one of the songs of Zion. How can we sing the songs of the Lord while in a foreign land? But you know, the Lord has a way of taking our broken dreams and giving us something better. Something far more significant in His eyes than we had ever imagined. For by the end of this day, when He should have become a priest, Ezekiel had been called be a prophet. Something happened that he'd never expected. There was this powerful work of God. Look at the four expressions in this passage that highlight the forceful, compelling experience that transformed Ezekiel's life. First, it says the heavens were opened. Somehow that invisible barrier that separates our earthly experience from that spiritual realm in which God dwells. It was taken away. The curtain was torn into. Ezekiel glimpses something of the glories of the divine court. He looks inside the true holy of holies. The heavens were opened. And then he says, I saw visions of God. Perhaps better, I saw divine visions. And I think this refers to the experience of seeing divine realities that are behind the events of this world. It's like going backstage on a play. Ezekiel's privy to the divine perspective, the, the director's staged directions, managing what the audience sees. Ezekiel sees what God is up to, what's really going on in the events unfolding in the world. He sees divine visions. And thirdly, it says, the word of the Lord came to me. See, Ezekiel received that prophetic gift to interpret what he saw and experienced. And and he was enabled to put it into words, the very words that God wanted him to use to communicate his truth. The word of the Lord came to him. And finally, it says, the hand of the Lord was upon him. That's an expression that's used seven times in this book. It speaks of the the overwhelming pressure and compulsion that that came from the presence of the Lord in his life with physical as well as psychological and spiritual effects upon him. The almighty God had made himself known in all his awesome holiness and power to this mere son of man. The hand of the Lord was upon him. 
But what is perhaps most amazing in all of this is captured in one little word. One little word. It's, it's the word sham in Hebrew, translated here as there. There. There among the exiles, along the Kabar River, in that unclean land, in a place of discouragement, a place of despair, far from the promised land, far from the sacred temple, there in Babylon, the hand of the Lord came upon him. You see, the Lord was not confined to temples made with hands. He was no local deity found only in Judea. No, he was the God of the whole world. And you know, there are times when our theology of the omnipresence of God needs to be confirmed in our own experience. And so it was for Ezekiel. God was there. Even in the dark times when we feel distant from Him, even when things look like they can't get any worse, even then, God is there. There in exile in Babylon, the hand of the Lord came upon Ezekiel. He would be God's messenger. And what was his message? What was this word of the Lord that came to Ezekiel? Well, that's what we want to find out. That's what we want to hear as we go through this book. But I want to give you just a little summary of what Ezekiel has to say to kind of give you a bird's eye view of the message of this book. In the first 24 chapters of the book, his, his message is basically one of God's judgment of Israel because of their sin, particularly their sin of idolatry, their sin of abandoning the Lord and worshiping other things instead. Well, this will be said in many ways from many angles, but the message is the same. Israel has sinned and her judgment is sure. God is just in bringing national calamity upon his people. Then in chapters 25 to 32, the attention will turn to the nations surrounding Israel. The Lord is not just Israel's God. He's the God of the whole world. They too, these other nations, they are subject to his judgment. And then in chapter 33, as I mentioned, the message changes. After the news arrives that the Babylonians have captured and conquered Jerusalem and they've destroyed the temple. You see, the wrath of God has been poured out in all its fury. God has made known the truth of His holiness. And then, and only then, are the people in a position, a position to receive His message of grace. And so from chapters 33 to 48, we see words of hope to God's people as they look to the future. Judgment, then grace. The order is significant. You know, we talk a lot about uh, here at, at Cornerstone Church about building a community of grace and truth. You see it there on the front of your worship bulletin, don't you? Building a community of grace and truth. Well, what we see here in, in Ezekiel, and I, and I want you to get this. If you don't get anything else, I want you to get this. Ezekiel is telling us that you must go through truth to get to grace. You must go through truth to get to grace. You see, Israel needed the truth about God's holiness, the truth about their own sin before they could be in a position to receive God's grace. For you see, grace without truth, and that's just sentimentality. It's mere tolerance. 
which in fact is moral indifference, moral emptiness. It's vacuous. It's, it's empty. It's demeaning. It's dehumanizing. Ultimately, it's a denial of our human dignity as responsible moral agents. More than that, it's a denial of who God is as a holy God, the, the judge of all the earth. And so Ezekiel's message is what I call grace through truth to the glory of God. Grace through truth to the glory of God. It's a message of salvation that comes through judgment. It's a message of life through death. And when you think about it, isn't this the message of the gospel? Isn't this the message of the gospel writ large in the history of Israel? Isn't this ultimately a pointer to the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, our Lord? You see, he takes our judgment. He reveals the truth of God's judgment against sin, the holiness of God. That's what the cross tells us. God hates sin. This is what it costs. But it's through that revelation of the truth about God's holiness. We come into a position to receive God's grace. Grace comes through truth. You see, there's no other way. There's no other way. In fact, isn't that true in our relationships with one another? If I do something to harm you, there really can't be reconciliation between us until I own up to the truth of what I've done. I come to acknowledge the harm that I have caused you. And I confess that. Confess means to to agree with. And it's only through that recognition, only through that confession, only through that acknowledgement of the truth that I can then be in a position to receive your forgiveness so that we can be reconciled. There can be no grace without truth. And so it is with God. To get to His grace in our lives, we must go through the truth of who He is as the holy and righteous God who deserves our full and complete loyalty and obedience. We must go through the truth of who we are as sinners before Him who have offended Him, who deserve His judgment. Only then, you see, are we in a position to receive His grace in the Gospel of Jesus Christ. Only then will the Gospel be precious to us. Only then will it have the power to transform our entire lives. But you know, unfortunately, many people never get there. Many people, even church-going people, they never quite get there. They want grace without truth. Grace without truth. And you know, they end up with neither one. The message of Ezekiel. Grace through truth, and I add that other expression, for the glory of God. Grace through truth, for the glory of God. For you see, you read Ezekiel, you will see that the ultimate value in all of this, the ultimate value in all of creation, all of human history, the ultimate value is the revelation of the glory of God. That's what it's all about. That's that's everything. God will act in judgment. God will act in mercy. And then they will know that I am the Lord. That's an expression that occurs in one form or another more than 70 times in the book of Ezekiel. 
Then they will know that I am the Lord. God acts in history to reveal himself. The prophet's role is simply to interpret that act of God in history for us, revealing its meaning. And it all points to the revelation of the glory of God that we may know that the Lord is God. And you see in Ezekiel, that's the ultimate motivation for all that God does. Even for His saving action, it's not, as we might think, because of our need. No. It's not even a matter of God's own compassion, His own heart for us. No. Both of those are real, and both of those are mentioned elsewhere in the Bible, not denying them. But for Ezekiel, what matters is what the salvation of Israel would mean for the Lord Himself. For His own name. For His own glory. As one commentator put it for Ezekiel, what ultimately mattered was that Yahweh's name and reputation should be vindicated and that the Lord, Yahweh, should be universally acknowledged as God. Yahweh, the Lord, His honor and glory must be restored to full visibility in the world. And that's why I call Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 22 and 23, the key verses for the whole book. I've included them on the little handout that I've given you on here on the back. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, this is what the sovereign Lord says. It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm going to do these things. And here the context is God's saving work is mercy toward his people. No, it's not for your sake that I'm doing these things, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations where you have gone. I will show the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, the name you have profaned among them. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the sovereign Lord, when I show myself holy through you before their eyes. The Lord will reveal himself in judgment and in mercy. And he does that for the sake of his own name, to show his holiness to the nations so that all nations may know that he is the Lord. You know, I like the first line of that hugely popular book by Rick Warren, uh, The uh, Purpose Driven Life. You remember that first line? It's not about you. It's not about you. It's not about your name. It's not about your reputation. It's not about your glory. It's all about the glory of God. And you see, when we orientate our lives around that truth, then suddenly our lives start to make sense. Our lives come together in a new way. Our lives fit into the glorious purposes of God. That's what we're created for. To live for the glory of God. So that's why we're going to read and study the Word of God through the prophet Ezekiel. Quite simply, so that we might know that He is the Lord. Knowing Him in His truth. So that we might know Him in His grace. So that we might shudder to sh- at the very thought that we might somehow profane the name of our great and glorious God by our sinful behavior that we might seek to live in a way that brings Him the honor that is His due. And as we study this Word, we will discover 
that he was there. He was there with Ezekiel in Babylon. And so he will be here with us in our exile as we long for our true home. May we have eyes to see the truth of God's word so that we might be in a position to receive his grace. All for his glory. Let's pray. God's word in the Bible is to be believed in all that it teaches. Obeyed in all that it requires. And trusted in all that it promises. Lord, we pray that we may see you in your glory through your word. And that you might transform our hearts through your truth as through it comes your grace. Lord, you 